You know, my granddaughter came over to the house the other day. And she said, Grandpa, let's play. And uh, so I went to a, a basket of toys and puzzles and drawing things I have for her. And she said, no, Grandpa, I want to play. And so what I realized was that what she wanted to do was just imagine and have a sense of wonder. Yeah? And uh, so we played, not for any purpose, just to discover. I think in this uh, journey of ours through life, love is the fuel for the journey. That's what carries us along. But joy, joy is the spark that ignites that fuel. Yeah. And joy, or I think it's um, engendered by curiosity and by a sense of wonder yeah, and discovery. Watch children play. They don't play for a purpose. They just play. You know, watch a child put a stick in her mouth. She doesn't do it because she's hungry. She does it because she wants to discover. You know that our lips have over a million neuroreceptors. That's why we like to kiss so much. A million neuroreceptors, a hundred times more sensitive than your fingertips. So when children put a stick in their mouth, they do it to discover, to know it directly, to know it intimately. And I think this is a good guidance for our, our, our mindfulness practice, our meditation practice, yeah. To know things directly, intimately, immediately. Yeah. So today I wanted to speak a little bit about the work that I've done for decades. Um, accompanying people near the end of life and, and to share perhaps um, what I was taught by the people I accompanied and uh, how that might have a relevance for all of us in living a wiser, perhaps a more loving life. Yeah. Many decades ago, I co-founded something called the Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco. It was the first Buddhist hospice in America. And it was a kind of fusion of spiritual insight and very practical social action. Yeah. Um, our intention was to discover, to create um, a mindful and compassionate approach to care. Yeah. And we worked predominantly with people who were homeless or unsheltered. And there were very diverse populations, often presented with triple diagnoses, which meant that they had some life-threatening illness. Oftentimes, um, they also had addictions of one kind or another, and often a kind of some kind of mental disability. Wow. And they had little or no family support. They had no money, only meager government allotments. And so uh, our work was to uh, give them a home and to provide palliative care and calm and, and I hope fearless presence. Yeah. I 
I don't think dying is predominantly a medical event. And I think we ought to stop treating it as if it were. We should bring the best of what medicine has to offer to care of people, good symptom management and pain control, et cetera. But I think that death is too big, too profound to be contained by any one model. Yeah. I mean, suppose in our practice, in our lives, we stop compartmentalizing um, death, cutting it off from life. And imagine, just imagine, if we regarded dying as an unprecedented opportunity for transformation. You know, then might we turn toward death as a master teacher and say, how should I live? In my experience, I think that being with death can open us to the deepest dimensions of our humanity. And when we regard caring for people who's, who are dying as making just making the best of a bad situation, I think we rob death of its holy significance. And as a result, many people are dying with a great deal of stress and fear. And I, I think we can do something about that. But it's not my object here today to talk to you about how to take care of people who are dying. It's, it's more to share with you what they, what they taught. I think the experience of dying is much more about relationships. Our relationship with ourselves, with those we love, with whatever image of ultimate kindness we hold to be true in this life. And in the early years of, um, of the hospice, uh, I developed five guidelines, we could say, or practices that uh, cultivated mindfulness and compassion and that we used as mm, our compass for taking care of people. And I think of them as mutually supportive principles that are permeated with love, actually. And as it turns out, they, they also have a relevance to each of us in living a life of integrity. They're kind of five bottomless precepts that we keep living into and keep discovering. Yeah. They have no value as theories or bolded points. They are um, only realized through action. And the five are, just to name them, uh, don't wait. That's the first one. Don't wait. And the second, uh, welcome everything. Push away nothing. And the third, bring your whole self to the experience. And the fourth, um, find a place of rest in the middle of things. And the fifth, um, cultivate, don't know mind. I thought since we were a Zen hospice, we should put something Zen in those, in those five principles. Um, but due to our time constraints today, I, I don't want to speak about all of them. I want to just focus our attention on the first one. Don't wait. Don't wait. Yeah. Because I want to leave time for us to have more interaction and, and to do a little exercise to help us discover more.
So waiting, waiting is full of expectation. Waiting for the next moment to arrive, we miss this one. Waiting for the moment of our dying, we miss all the moments in between. Last night, I was with a family. Uh, a man called me about two years ago and asked if I could help him through the dying process. And I said, sure. And he wasn't actively dying then. And I said, you know, call me back when it gets closer. And so yesterday, his wife called to say that he had died. And um, she just wanted to let me know. And I said, well, could I be of some support to you? And so she said, oh, please. And so I came over to the house to talk to her and her two teenage children. I never met the man. We only talked on the phone once or twice, but I'm very loyal to people that I make a commitment to. And they said, it went so much faster than we imagined. Our expectations are just that. I um, was caring for a man in our hospice one time and washing his back, yeah? And as I washed his back, he, he leaned over his shoulder to me and he said, I never thought it would be like this. And I said, what? And he said, dying. And I said, well, what did you think it would be like? And he said, I never thought about it. And in that moment, that realization was a greater source of suffering for him than his terminal lung cancer. He'd been caught by surprise. He didn't reflect on his mortality ever. Don't wait. I mean, that's the elephant in the room, right? The truth we all know that, that we agree not to talk about. You know, that, that we keep at arm's length, that we project our worst fears onto, that we joke about, that we use euphemisms to describe. You know, we don't die, we expire like credit cards. We can run, but we cannot hide. There's an old... Um, Babylonian myth, maybe you've heard it before, um, of a merchant who sends his servant to the market. And while the servant's at the market, he bumps into a woman and uh, he turns to look at her and he realizes that she is death and he's terrified. And so he leaves the market, he runs home to uh, the home of his other merchant and he says, I, I, I looked. I bumped into this woman. I, I know that she was death and she made this threatening glance at me. And, and so would you please lend me your horse so I can ride away from Baghdad to Samara where death will not find me. And so the merchant, of course, agrees and the man rides off in a fury to Samara. And the merchant, who's a little braver, he goes to the market and there he encounters death and he confronts her. And says, uh, you know, why did you frighten my servant today? Why did you make that threatening glance? And that said, oh, that wasn't the threatening glance. It was a look of astonishment. I was surprised to see him here in Baghdad when I knew tonight I had an appointment with him in Samara. Hmm. We can run, but we cannot hide. Just imagine for a moment with me, yeah? Imagine that, well, we often imagine, I should say, that 
at the time of our death, we will have the physical strength, the, the emotional stability, the mental clarity to do the work of a lifetime. This is an absurd gamble. No matter what we think about our mindfulness practice, it's an absurd gamble. The time for the conversation is now. Time to prepare is now. You know, I've dedicated most of my adult life to taking care of or accompanying people at the end of their lives. You know, I changed lots of diapers on park benches behind City Hall in San Francisco. I I work with people from all kinds of cultures, you know, who spoke languages that I couldn't speak. I don't have some PowerPoint presentation to offer you today about the seven steps to a good death. I just want to remind us that we don't have to wait until the time of our dying to learn the lessons it has to teach. People I worked with were alcoholics sometimes and prostitutes or unsheltered folks who lived in horrible conditions. And they'd lost all trust in humanity. Some of them uh, had a deep faith that carried them through the process and others, you know, they'd sworn off religion years ago. There was a man, um, Nguyen, he was a Vietnamese man, and uh, he was really frightened of ghosts. Yeah. And living in this hospice where so many people were, had died, he was sure that he saw ghosts. And his roommate, an um, uh, African-American man whose name was Isaiah, um, he was very comforted by what he called nightly visits from his dead mother. <laughs> they were quite a pair, these two. Well, there was a man that I met, he was a hemophiliac and uh, he contracted the HIV virus through a blood transfusion. But the year before, several months before anyway, he had hung up the phone on his gay son when his gay son, gay son told him that he was HIV positive. But when I met him, they were in twin beds in the same room being cared for by Agnes, the son's mother and the father's wife, both dying of AIDS. Yeah. Some of the people I, I, I worked with, they were clear as bells. And others had severe dementia. And like Alex, I remember Alex, he crawled out onto his fire escape one night and froze to death, just out of confusion. For some of these folks, dying was a great gift. They made reconciliations with long-lost family members or freely expressed, their, freely expressed their love or offered or received forgiveness that they've been looking for their whole lives. But some of them also turned to the wall in hopelessness and depression and helplessness, and they never came back again. All of them were my teachers. You know, the, the habits of our life 
the ones we have today, they have a very strong momentum to them. And they propel us right into the moment of our dying. So the question we reasonably want to ask is, what habits do we want to create? I mean, suppose we used our insight practice to stop compartmentalizing death. You know, without a reminder of death, we tend to take this life for granted, um, getting caught up in endless pursuits of self-gratification. But when we keep death close at hand at our fingertips, it reminds us not to hold on so tightly. And maybe we take ourselves a little less seriously and we let go a little more easily. Because I think when we recognize that death comes to everyone, we appreciate that it's our common ground. And I believe that it helps us to be kinder and gentler with each other. Dying is like our practice, intimate. It's also inevitable, of course. And I've seen ordinary people, people like you and I, regular folks develop very profound insights that come at the end of their lives, maybe in the last month or weeks or days or sometimes moments of their lives that have them emerging as someone larger, more expansive than the small separate self they've taken themselves to be. And I, this isn't a fairy tale, because I don't think death works out well every time. It doesn't have a red ribbon on it. But I think this happens quite, quite regularly. And you might say, um, too late. And I would agree, too late. However, the truth is that, or the value is that, it's not in how long they enjoyed the experience. It's that this possibility for transformation exists. And if it exists then, well, it exists now for all of us. So we can harness an awareness of death now to appreciate the fact that we're alive, to encourage self-exploration, to clarify our values, to discover meaning, to generate, hopefully, positive action in our world. And what becomes undeniable when you sit with people who are dying is that impermanence is in the nature of life, right? It, it's always coming together and falling apart. And not just at the time we're dying. And I think it's possible to hold it all with love and compassion. I mean, life's uncertainty gives us perspective. It... Um, when we know how precarious this life actually is, then we come to appreciate how precious it is. Then we don't want to waste a moment of it. We want to tell the people we love that we love them. We want to enter our lives fully and use it in a responsible way. 
So I think don't wait is a, a pathway to fulfillment and an antidote to regret. You know, embracing the truth that everything inevitably ends, you know, just encourages us not to wait. I mean, that vase that your mother gave you, that treasured vase that she's had her whole life, that you put on a shelf, you know, that you, that you love, it will inevitably fall off the shelf one day. Your roof's going to leak. Your car's going to break down. The people we love are going to die. So instead of pinning our hopes on a better future, we, we focus on the present and being grateful for what we have right in front of us. So I have a question for all of you. How many of you think that death will come later? Just raise your physical hand. How many of you think death will come later? Huh? That's it. Just look around. Scan. Scan the screen. Huh? Yeah. Most of us have that idea. And, and, and later, it gives us this comfortable illusion of a safe distance, actually. But, you know, we know from our practice, constant change is not later. It's right here now. And impermanence is the essential truth woven into the very fabric of existence. It's inescapable, perfectly natural, and our most constant companion. I mean, where's this morning's breakfast? Where's last night's lovemaking? Yeah. Maybe one of you could tell me, where has my blonde hair gone? I think our work is to take that teaching, that conceptual idea of impermanence, and, and move it from our heads and nestle it deep in our hearts. Yeah. Impermanence isn't the cause of our suffering. You know, we, we rely on change, right? I mean, that cold you have today, it won't last forever. Pandemics are resolved. Virtual dinner parties will eventually end. Without impermanence, you know, your son couldn't take his first steps. Your daughter couldn't grow up to be a scientist. It's humbling, absolutely certain, yet the way it will manifest is unpredictable. Here's the thing that really interests me about impermanence. You know, we all agree that seasons come and go, that, that um, trends peak, that relationships begin and end. But we like to think of ourselves as a constant thing moving through a changing world. Yeah. Like when people come to see me that I haven't maybe visited with in a long time, they say, oh, Frank, you haven't changed at all. And I'm a little insulted, actually, because I think I've been through a lot of change. But we like this idea that the whole world is changing except me. I'm the one thing in the whole world that's, that's not changing. Yeah? It's, it's an arrogant position to take. We're mistaken. You know? we're, we're not the barista. We're not the software engineer. We're not 
really even the people listening to this talk, at least not in the way we imagine, right? We're, we're like everything else at once here and disappearing. A few years ago, I was in uh, Japan teaching and um, I happened to be there at the height of cherry blossom season. It's a beautiful time to be there. You know, these delicate, gorgeous flowers that cover the hillsides of Japan. And the Japanese people follow through the blossoming. Yeah? Gorgeous. They last only for a few weeks. Well, there's this cabin that I stay at when I'm teaching in the northwestern part of the United States. And there are these flowers, these little tiny blue flax flowers that cover the ground outside the cabin. And they last for a single day, just one day. Tell me something. Why are those cherry blossoms and those blue flax flowers so much more magnificent than plastic flowers? I mean, plastic flowers last for a long time, right? I mean, isn't it the, the uncertainty of their life, the brevity of their life that captivates us, that, that invites us into their beauty, to a sense of wonder and, and gratitude? I mean, that's not a stranger. It, it's always announcing itself. I mean, this moment that you're having right now, it, it won't come again. And you don't know how many more moments like this you'll have. And I don't say that to frighten you. I say that to celebrate this moment. We have this one opportunity to fall in love with existence. Just to fall in love with it. To be present for its beauty and its horror. I, uh, I had a heart attack uh, several years ago and it was a big deal, major surgery and triple bypasses and they, they cut open my chest in the center and peeled it back like a crab. And they literally took my heart out of my body for a while. I mean, I was heartless, completely heartless for a little while. Yeah. Till they repaired it, my, all the vessels and arteries. And uh, during the course of that time, a, a very famous Buddhist teacher, a Tibetan teacher called me and uh, to wish me well and et cetera. And I, I knew this particular teacher had had uh, his own heart issues, his own um, troubles with his heart. And so I thought, oh, he's going to help me with this. He's going to know, right? He's going to give me some esoteric practice or some wonderful mantra that I can repeat that will stabilize me. And, uh, and so I asked him, how did you deal with it all? The, the drama and the, the pain and the beauty, actually, of this experience. And uh, I thought, oh, here it comes, right? And he paused for a while. And then on the other end of the phone, I, I heard him say, well, I thought it was good to have a heart. And if you have a heart, you should expect it will have problems. And then he told me to rest more. And he hung up. That was it. No esoteric practice. No great, bright mantra. If you have a heart, you should expect it will have problems. Rest more. 
And I thought, he's right. You know, it's true. If we have a human life, we should expect that we'll have problems. I mean, who told us otherwise? This is our shared human condition, isn't it? You know, there's this phenomenon that happens amongst people with cancer when they're newly diagnosed, yeah? I've worked with lots of them. And there's this thing that they, they have and speak to each other about. They don't speak to their doctors about it, not even their families oftentimes. They share it with me occasionally. And uh, they call it a secret gratitude. A secret gratitude. Huh. And this is what happens like after the initial shock of, of diagnosis kind of wears off, you know, there's this quality of a secret gratitude. And at first I didn't understand it, but, you know, they said that it helps them gain perspective. And they say things like, I can say no to more work or to people or activities that no longer interest me. Before, I always felt obliged to say yes. But they tell me now I can finally rest. Can finally rest. There was a woman in our hospice, um, Adele was her name, and she was this rough, tough, kind of grumpy uh, Russian Jewish lady, 86 years old, and she was dying. And uh, when people would die in the hospice, I would almost always go <clears throat> and be, keep them company. So they called me, and I went back to the hospice to be with her. And, there she was, sitting on her bed, dangling her feet in her night clothes, sitting on the edge of the bed. And my way is to go into the room and, and to sit in the corner, you know, to sit on the couch to see, is anything needed before I jump in to help? And there I watched Dell, you know, breathing with great difficulty, every in-breath difficult, every out-breath a struggle. And this was despite the fact that we'd made all the correct interventions, she had oxygen and morphine on board and all the correct interventions. And I watched this for a while and I saw every breath of struggle. And so I went over and I pulled up my chair right face to face with her, like I'm, I'm with you right now. And I said, Adele, would you like to struggle a little less? And she said, yes. I said, oh, okay. I said, I noticed right there at the end of your exhale, there was this little gap. You know, I wonder if you could put your attention there just for a moment, you know. Now Adele didn't care beans about Buddhism or meditation or any of these things, but she was highly motivated at this moment to be free of suffering. That's usually what gets most of us to sit down on the cushion, isn't it? And so, as she would breathe in, I would breathe in. As she would breathe out, I would breathe out. I didn't guide her, really. I just breathing with her. And then I watched over time her find that, that gap, you know, that pause in the middle, at the end of the, la the last exhale before the new inhale arrives. She, I could see her finding it, discovering it. And as she did, this fear that had characterized her face just kind of drained away, actually. And uh, she came to a place of rest, find a place of rest in the middle of things, yeah. Adele didn't want any nonsense. She didn't want to talk about 
tunnels of light or barnos or any of these things. She just wanted real relationship. And she wanted to be free of struggle. And after this little exchange, you know, she said, Frank, I'm going to just put my head back down on the pillow and rest. I said, great idea. Now, go ahead. And so she did. And a little while later, she died uh, very peacefully. Do we need to die before we can rest in peace? Don't wait. I think that when we embrace impermanence, a certain grace enters our lives. And we can treasure our experiences. We can feel them deeply, all without clinging. We're free to savor our life, to touch the texture of each passing moment, whether it's a moment of sadness or joy. We come to appreciate and become more resilient, you know. When I, when I had my heart attacks, I, I studied the writing of other people who'd had heart attacks. And, and one of them was the great psychologist, Abraham Maslow. And Abe, um, he wrote, he said something like, death and its ever-present possibility makes love, passionate love, so much more possible. You know the two questions that are most important that engage people as they're dying? It isn't about their regrets. At least in my experience, the two questions that come along and framed in one way or another are basically, Am I loved? And did I love well? And this isn't an assessment, you know, it isn't a criticism. It's just wondering, am I loved? And did I love well? And if those two questions are the most important questions at the end of our life, well, aren't they the most important questions now? And should we wait to, to live into them? Don't wait. I mean, to be human, right? It's much more than getting born and getting an education and finding the right partner or finding a nice house to live in on a pretty street just so we can go to sleep, wake up, work, and go to bed and do it all over again. I think it's an invitation to feel everything, to come into direct and immediate contact with this strange and beautiful and horrible and sometimes perfectly ordinary thing that we call life. It's an opportunity to, to be conscious of the fact that some of us will make war like we have now while others of us will make love. It's to recognize the truth that there are babies, like my granddaughter, who are born into a loving family, whose, whose mother kisses a bright future into her cheeks every day. And there are babies like my friend Carolyn, whose mother left her in a dumpster when she was born. And there are, there are children right now that are making 
tents out of bed sheets and couch pillows in their living rooms. And there were screams in Syrian refugee camps and Ukrainian refugee camps right now. In America, there's children being shot in schools. And there are other children who are speaking truth to power. There's devastation and there's hopelessness. And there's passion and the holy commitment to creating a better future for everyone. There's me speaking and there's you listening and the separation that seems to exist between us. And then there's a unity that we feel almost immediately when we're reminded that there's love. Don't wait. Don't wait. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.